Well, good morning, Four Points. How are you on this rainy day? <laughs> good. Man, eight years. Eight years. Four Points has been doing the kingdom work for eight years, guys. I'm so excited about who we've been. I'm so excited about what God's doing. I'm so grateful for you. Do you know you are Four Points? You are. This is a great church. You know why it's a great church? Because God is here and because you're here. So I'm so grateful for you guys this morning. I'm so grateful for what you bring. I'm so grateful for how God uses you and how God is going to do great things through us here at Four Points. He already has, and he's just going to keep doing it, guys. Well, we're in a series right now called Victorious. We're walking through stories in the Bible where we see victory. Guys, how many of you need to know you have victory today? Here's, here's what I find, right? I, most people... Most people come to church not feeling like they've got life together. Like we're really good at faking it sometimes, right? You do it, I do it, right? We put on a happy face, but most people are struggling, right? And we've talked about Moses. We talked about Caleb, that old dude. We, last week we talked about David and Goliath. I mean, what an epic example of God's power. But here's where you and I struggle sometimes. We read a story like that and we're like, man, that's really cool for Moses. Man, that's really cool for Caleb. That's really cool for David. Those are some people that I would admire. But we don't see ourselves in that place. We see them as those that succeed, and we see ourselves as the ones who fail. And guys, as believers, what I want to do today is I want us to stop seeing people as heroes and start seeing Jesus as the hero, seeing God as the hero. And you know who God uses? You know who God does powerful things through? Ordinary Sinful people who fail. And even in the midst of our compromises and failings and mistakes, God is still victorious. And God wants to be victorious in us. So last week we talked about victory through courage. How David, this young man just with indignation that Goliath was insulting God and his people, was the only guy in all of Israel who was willing to stand up to this giant named Goliath. And he had great courage that he found in the Lord. David actually turned out to be the greatest king that Israel ever had. That was the first of many victories in his life. David went out with the Israelites and they conquered every threat that came against Israel. And David, he led this vast army. He was a warrior. He wasn't like an armchair quarterback. Like David was the guy who was leading from the front line. That's what leaders do, BT dubs. David also, among all the kings of Israel, was, was the most faithful at keeping people's eyes on God. Like he, he was always dialing in to God and always keeping the nation of Israel dialed in to God. 
But like the rest of us, David had his weaknesses. After walking with God through many victories, guys, even David became complacent. You know what complacent is? Lazy. Just starting to feel like life is normal. Not needing to look to God. We get there, don't we? Where we're just trucking along at life. We're not really spending time on a daily basis or semi-daily basis with God. We don't really pray to him, right? Because we feel like we, we can handle the situations in our lives without needing to call on God to intervene or be a part of it. So this morning, I want to walk through David's later years as king, and we're going to make some observations as we go. So I have a lot of content to get through this morning, but guys, I sat down with my notes and just pulled everything out that I could. And guys, this message is for this morning. I want you to dial in. Somebody, somebody's really need to hear this message, or maybe it's just me. But here's the first observation I want us to take from David's later life. Heroes are human. Heroes are human. Where our story picks up, David has been king for 22 years. He's in his 50s now. And in, the, in this time period, guys, 50s is old. I know those of you in your 50s now, you look like you're 20, you know? That's not how it was back then. They didn't brush their teeth, you know? You're in your 50s back then. You, you were worn out from years of hard work and farming and labor. Your teeth had fallen out, and you looked like you were about 100 when you were in your 50s. Back in this time, this is how old David is. David's no longer the handsome young guy. And as Israel's enemies are sticking out their chests at Israel, as always happens, you know, it's one of my hobbies is geopolitics. I'm fascinated with how countries relate to one another. Because countries, you know what? They're just like people. <laughs> Sometimes they're like toddlers um, in the way that they interact. So there's always a threat to a nation. And so there's nations sticking their chest out at Israel, and, and David is sending his armies out to fight these battles to protect his nation and to protect his people. But David does something different now in his 50s than he's done in the past. He decides, I'm not going to go out into battle with the soldiers. I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to fight from the front line. Now, granted, he was old. We understand, right? He fought many battles. But he decided to stay behind when maybe he should have gone. And our story picks up in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, in this time period, guys, and even in the first century during the time of Jesus, the average home in the city of Jerusalem would have been about the size of this stage or smaller. And on this side over here, they would have their living quarters where they would cook and they would sleep uh, on mats together. And over on this side, they would have, uh, you know, a sheep or whatever animals they had right there in the house with them. And then they would go up on the roof to take a bath. Everybody did that. David knew when he was going out on his roof at night what he was going to see. 
and he saw a woman who was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said to him, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So what's going on here? David has stayed home from the battle. Guys, sometimes it's the little decisions that lead us to a place of compromise. He was laying in bed unsettled. He had that temptation to go out on the roof, right? See what he could see, and off he went. We've been there. Maybe for you it's not the roof. Maybe it's the television, or maybe it's your cell phone, or maybe it's the Internet. But the enemy likes to make us feel unsettled when he wants us to wander, when he wants our, our hearts to wander. And he sees Bathsheba bathing. She's beautiful. She's married to Uriah the Hittite. Who's this? We see in other places in the Bible, David lists a group of guys called his mighty men. These are like the legendary fighters that fought with David. And that's what Uriah was. He was one of David's very best, most skilled warriors. And David, in this moment of temptation, he's, he just thought, you know, I'm the king. I can have what I want. Maybe he thought, I'm the king. I deserve to have what I want. Have you ever seen leaders like that? It's a temptation for every leader, I'm sure. You know, power corrupts, right? Power corrupts absolutely. You heard that? But David had this moment. I'm sure he didn't think that way all the time, but in this moment he thought maybe he deserved to have what he wanted, even though it was the wife of one of his best men. And he brings Bathsheba in, and they don't spend probably just one night. They probably spend several and then what happens, for those of you who haven't been through anatomy and biology class, when a man and a woman come together, you make a baby, right? And so Bathsheba becomes pregnant. She sends word to David, and David is like, holy crap, right? He was just expecting to have fun. He wasn't expecting to have to take responsibility, David's complacency led to compromise, and with his compromise came consequences. Listen, whenever we compromise our convictions, there are always consequences, guys. Always. When we're confronted by the truth, we can do one of two things. We can choose to return to God, or we can choose to take our own path. We can choose to try to fix it ourselves. We can choose to try to handle it ourselves. The second observation I want to make is this. Sin isn't manageable. Sin isn't manageable. David chose to handle the situation himself. Rather than turning to God and stepping back, David thought to himself, I'm a powerful man. I can fix this. Let me just... Let me just think. He went and found his recliner, put his feet up, you know? What can I do to make this better? I can handle this on my own. This is a temptation for all of us, guys, when we sin, to try to handle the consequences, to try to manage the consequences. Maybe even more so for those who have natural leadership. <laughs> You're used to solving problems, and so when you encounter one that you've caused, you try to solve it on your own. 
We're always tempted to outsmart the consequences rather than take responsibility. When our hearts aren't humble and soft to the Lord, guys, we will always find a way to justify our actions. Here's something I found out after years of ministry. There are very few villains in the world. There's not very many gurus, you know, out there just looking for bad stuff to do. There are some. But most people, as wrong as they might be, have a justification. They will sit down and explain to you why it was okay for them. And when our hearts aren't soft to the Spirit's conviction, when we become complacent, when we're not drawing near to God, we find ourselves in a place where we feel like we know better. We feel like we deserve better. We begin to justify the things that we do wrong. We begin to justify the things that we say wrong. Instead of looking to God's word to say that something is wrong, we say, well, maybe it's okay because... So David decides he's going to cover things up and handle them on his own. And we're going to see a downward spiral here. Remember me talking about how sin is a downward spiral? So David calls Uriah home from the battle line. Says, hey man, why don't you go home? Hang out, right? What do you think a soldier does when he's been gone for months? He's going to go home and get it on, right? This is what David thinks. He's like, Uriah's going to go home. He's been waiting all this time. He's going to get it on. He's going to get Bathsheba pregnant and I'm going to be in the clear. They're going to think that it's his child. The only problem is Uriah is a more faithful man than David. Uriah sleeps outside. (laughs) He says, how can I go home and enjoy my wife when my men are shedding blood? So David says, okay, just stay one more day. He brings Uriah back, gets Uriah plastered, points him towards the house, pushes him towards the house, and he still doesn't go home. How can I? How can I go home and enjoy my wife when my men are shedding their blood? Now David has a problem. Guys, even now he could turn to God. But this is how pride works. Once you give, you and I give pride a foothold, it doesn't let go. David is determined to be right. He's determined to manage the consequences. 2 Samuel 11 verse 14 says this. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, that's the leader of the army, and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, so crazy that he sent this letter with Uriah and didn't have second thoughts. Or maybe he did, he just didn't do anything about it. Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. This is where pride will take us, guys. I would bet up until this time, David probably thought he would never do something like this. But once he decided he was going to manage the consequences his way, rather than return to God, it's really hard to stop that train once it's moving. So Uriah was killed. 
David took Bathsheba into his home and he thought he had successfully managed the consequences of his affair. What David in his plan didn't account for was God. Guys, in all of the power and influence we might think we have as human beings, in all of the capability we might be able to muster, we are always accountable to God. And he is always more powerful. He is always more able. And God is never mocked. Our third observation is this. Sin always has consequences. Can't manage it. It always has consequences. So some time goes by and the prophet Nathan shows up at David's house. I don't know if he was scared to death. Confronting a king was probably a pretty scary thing to do. Especially one that you knew had already murdered one of his best men. But he comes to David with a parable. And he tells this fictitious story of a rich man who lives in a village with a poor man. And this rich man had all kinds of sheep, all kinds of livestock. He was wealthy. And then there's a poor man in the same village, and he was so poor he had only one lamb, one baby lamb. And David or Nathan shares a story in a way that like for this man, this lamb was like a child to him. Like he kept, the, he kept the lamb with him in the house. The lamb was with his children. He cared for the lamb. It meant something to him. And in this parable, the rich man has some, some friends come to visit. He doesn't want to kill one of his own sheep to feed them. So he goes over to the poor man's house, takes his lamb, kills it, and feeds it to his friends. Listen to David's response in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5, after David heard this story. David burned with anger (laughs) against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. I mean, David was king. David had whatever he wanted. But he took Uriah's wife. And then to try to cover it up, he killed Uriah. And Nathan goes on to warn David about the consequences that are coming because of his sin. And as I read these, you're going to see God's judgment, God holding David accountable, but it's mixed in there with the natural consequences of the decisions that David made. David and Bathsheba's child died. God told him, this child that Bathsheba has conceived is going to die. And Samuel records the grieving and the mourning that David has. David, later on, David's son Amnon rapes his sister, Tamar, David's daughter. And you know what David does when Amnon rapes his sister? Nothing. Do you know why David probably did nothing? How could he? You don't think Amnon would have been like, oh yeah, dad, what, are you judging me? What about Bathsheba? 
Dad? What about Uriah, Dad? Does that mean that David shouldn't have confronted his son Amnon? Absolutely not. But do you see where David, because of his decision, lost some of the credibility to be able to confront his own children? So David does nothing. His daughter, whom Amnon raped, was Absalom, his other son, one of his other son, Absalom's sister. Absalom is furious and takes his sister into his house and takes care of her. And he says to her, don't you worry about it. I'll handle this. So after two years, Absalom calls a meeting of all of his brothers and he kills Amnon and then flees Jerusalem. After some time passes, the king allows Absalom to come home, but refuses to talk to him or see him for two years. After David finally meets with Absalom to reconcile, the damage has already been done. And for the next four years, Absalom begins to go out amongst the people and turn their hearts away from his dad. You think he's a good king? He doesn't even have time to meet with you. Absalom started showing up at the city gates and saying, hey, let me help you. Let me help you. My dad's busy. Let me help you. And over the course of four years, the Bible tells us that Absalom turned the hearts of the Israelites in Jerusalem to him and against his father. Eventually, Absalom leads a rebellion of Israelites into Jerusalem to dethrone his father as king. And David knows it. And by now, these four years have gone by. Absalom has a lot of help. He's got a greater army than David has. But here's what David thinks. He thinks to himself, this is my fault. I caused this. I'm not going to let my people suffer because of the decision that I made. The decisions in my life. So David takes the few loyal people with him and his mighty men, except for Uriah, who maybe would have been there. And they leave Jerusalem so that Absalom can just come in without having to kill anyone. He just abandons the throne. You see, God held David accountable for his sin and his arrogance. David's sin also had a ripple effect in his family. Parents, how many of you know that your kids watch you? Don't they pick up on the good and the bad? I see my boys all the time do things I wish they didn't do, but then I know that I've done them in front of them, right? I was at a race this week, and I was crossing a crosswalk, and this dude like laid on the horn, man. He made me jump like 10 feet in the air, and I swore. <laughs> my boys are with me. So we get done walking to the other side, there's a state trooper there. He goes up and yells at the guy because it's a crosswalk. I turn around to my boys. I said, boys, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. Right? Our kids watch us. 
They watch us all the time. Leaders, how many of you know that you're responsible for what people see in you? You know that? It's true of me. If you see me do something that leads you astray, I have to answer to God for that. I do. You do. We all do. Guess what? We're all Christians. We're all responsible for the influence that we have. And our decisions cause a ripple effect around us. If we're not careful. Listen, God doesn't expect us to be perfect, guys. But he doesn't give us a pass. You know what's more important than you and I being who we think we are? Being like Jesus. Don't ever use your personality as an excuse to do the wrong thing. Because that part of me that's not like Jesus, God is trying to change that, not leave it. You tracking with me? It's not right for me to say, you know what, I just... I just had to swear. That guy deserved it. No. No. It's the wrong thing to do. Right? I'm just being honest with you guys. Are you okay with that? Teacher teach best what teacher need learn most. That's what Mr. Miyagi said. <laughs> My fourth observation is this. Real repentance requires humility. 2 Samuel 15, verse 23 says this. The whole countryside wept aloud as the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Zadok was there too and all the Levites were with him carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They had taken the Ark of the Covenant and they were traveling with David out of Jerusalem. They set down the Ark of God and Ab... Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do whatever seems good to him. Do you see David's humility here? Do you see his leadership, guys? It would have been easy for him to be vindictive and take the ark of God with him. Because you know what the people of Israel would have thought? God is with my king and he's leaving us. Right? God is with David. David didn't want the people of Israel to feel abandoned by God. He said, you take that ark and put it back. Right? I'm in the position I'm in because of the decisions I made. You put the ark back. If God is pleased with me, he'll bring me back to see it. You see, David stopped trying to manage it. He stopped trying to control it. He didn't make himself into a politician. He led by being a sacrificial leader. He knew he needed to entrust himself and his future and his people to God. Guys, I love this next part. So as David is leaving, 
he's traveling. He's approached by a distant relative of King Saul, right? The last guy, the former king. And this guy's name is Shimei. Shimei, knowing that David is fleeing from Absalom, comes out and mocks him and throws rocks at him. So picture this, okay? Here's David. Now he's, fleeing. he's walking away in shame, right? And Shimei knows this. But David has also got his mighty men on his right and his left. The fiercest warriors of all time. Right? And this dude just comes out and starts throwing rocks at him. Calls him a fool, calls him an idiot, calls him a murderer. And David's mighty men, they react the way you think that they might. They say, they say David, this guy, can I just take his head off, please? That's the language they use. Let's just take this guy's head off. Who does he think he is? Throwing rocks at the king. You know we all need loyal friends. Even when we screw up, maybe even more when we screw up. Listen to David's reply to his men who want to cut Shimei's head off. 2 Samuel 16, verse 11. David said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me this covenant blessing instead of his curse today. Humility. Humility. Do you know it's our own insecurity that makes us shoot our own wounded? We'll get to that more later. David has humbled himself. He stopped trying to manage the consequences and he's obviously abandoned himself completely to God. He's repented. And here's what repentance looks like. We can learn it from David. When we truly repent, we do three things. Number one, we take responsibility and we don't make excuses. We stop saying, but. I did that, but. We take responsibility. It's pride that keeps us from taking responsibility. Number two, we keep faith and we don't get angry with God. Listen, when you and I compromise, we've got nothing to be mad at God for. David had no reason to be mad at God. He could have. He could have let his pride well up. He could have faulted God that he was having to leave Jerusalem. But he didn't. David didn't lose faith. And number three, when we repent, we give the future to God. We stop trying to manage the consequences of our sin for the outcome that we want. And we say, God, I blew it. I'm in your hands. Do with me as you please. And lastly, repentance leads to restoration. After Absalom takes Jerusalem, he decides to take it one step further, musters the army to go after David. So David sends his soldiers to defend themselves and those people who were with David, but he gives them really clear instructions, do not harm my son Absalom. You see, David's taking responsibility. Absalom's guilty of his own sin, but David knows that he had a part to play. Don't hurt the boy Absalom for me, he said. In 2 Samuel 18, verse 6, it says, David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. 
There Israel's troops were rooted by David's men and the casualties that day were great. The very thing David wanted to avoid. 20,000 men died. The battle spread over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed up more than the sword on that day. So Absalom's army is defeated and Absalom is ultimately killed also. Another reminder to David that he can't manage the consequences. So the Israelites come in search of David to bring him back as their king. I love this too, on the way back, David's on his way back. The Israelite leaders have come to bring him back as king from his place of humility and repentance, right? And Shimei shows up again. (laughs) Of course, right? So he falls down before David. Please don't kill me. I was an idiot. I did the wrong thing. Please don't kill me. And David's men who are loyal to him say, you need to kill this guy. He shamed the king. But David protects him. He says, don't I know that I'm king in Israel today? In other words, what do I have to prove by killing this guy? Nothing. David knew who he was. He knew that God had brought him back to lead his people. When you return to God and God restores you, listen, you don't have to prove yourself to anyone. David had nothing to prove. People who allow themselves to experience grace become grace-filled people. It's when we're proud and we think we have it all together that we hurt people the most. But people who have learned to receive grace from God become people who give grace freely. And I'm here this morning to tell you this, guys. You are more than your mistakes. You are more than your mistakes. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, your and my failures are not our legacy. That's not who we are. Because Jesus paid for it. And when we return to God... He restores what was lost. Guys, listen, return to God and watch God do even greater things in your life. Let repentance and restoration be your legacy. What better legacy is there anyway? You want to know what's important about me? You want to know what makes me important? You important? God loves me. That's it. Everything else is a facade. Nothing else is important. That's who we are. That's our legacy. And listen to what the Bible says about David in the New Testament, reflecting back on who David was, all of his victories and his failures. Acts 13, verse 22. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. That mean David didn't make mistakes? Heck no. But David never lost his faith in God. 
When he blew it, he took the road of humility. So he was still a man after God's own heart. David lost his way, but he never lost his faith. Listen to Luke chapter 1, verse 31. This is the angel Gabriel talking to Mary, Jesus' mother. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will have no end. David's legacy was not his failure. David's legacy was not his compromise. Because God is bigger than our failures. His grace is bigger than our falls. And we all have them. And this will blow your mind. In the genealogy of Jesus where it talks about all of Jesus' ancestors leading up to the Messiah, which by the way is the most important genealogy of all time, He comes through the line of David and Bathsheba. I think God wants us to know that he restores broken situations. So what does this have to do with me? What does it have to do with you? Number one, repentance is the way forward. Listen to James chapter four, verse four. James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity or being, being or making yourself an enemy of God? Therefore, if anyone chooses to be a friend of the world, they become an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he, God, jealously longs for the spirit he's called to dwell in us? In other words, when we sin, guys, God is jealous for us. but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In other words, just tell the devil no, he gets scared. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. This is repentance, guys. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Do you know that that's God's plan to always lift you up? Repentance is the way forward. It doesn't matter what you or I have done. There's nothing so bad that God's grace is not big enough. It's not bigger still. Sometimes we get picky about who can come to church. You know what Jesus says? Bring me the prostitutes. Bring me the pimps. Bring me the drug addicts. Bring me the murderers. These are the people God wants because he he came to seek and save the lost. God's grace is big enough. That's why the church is a place of joy because guys, we all freely receive the grace of God. 
because of Jesus. We need to stop shooting our wounded. That's something else we can learn. Too many times the church acts like Shimei, pelting stones when somebody falls. I'm going to be nerdy for a second. You know, Darwin taught humanity the idea of survival of the fittest. Let the weak die and let the strong live. This is what the world lives. This is how the world operates. This is not what we believe. When we gossip, when we work behind the scenes to harm someone else, when we manipulate to position ourselves over someone else, we are not living the faith we profess. When we have backroom dialogue about somebody else, we are not living the faith we profess. When we are sending text messages to shame someone else, we are not living the faith we profess. We don't shoot our wounded here. We don't seek to elevate ourselves over someone else. After all, we're all sinners saved by grace. You know what you do if you think someone is on a wrong path? Help them. Encourage them. Stand behind them, even if you don't agree with everything. As followers of Jesus, we help each other, we carry each other, we fight together, and we have the victory together. We are better together. God wants to restore your life. If this morning you're wondering what God wants for you and me, it's restoration. When someone hurts us, we want them to pay for it, right? <laughs> we want them to suffer at least a little bit. There's this country song, I'll be sorry, but not right now. It's like David refusing to talk to Absalom for two years. How might things have been different if he sat down with him? Pride. But this is not how God relates to us, guys. Every time we fail, God creates a path back to him. Every time we fall, God creates a path for our return. And lastly, God is not done with you. It's not about what you've done. It's about what you are going to do. Your legacy is not about who you've been. It's about who you are going to let God make you into. Sin does not have the final word in your life. Failure does not have the final word in your life. Death does not have the final word in your and my life. If you and I will humble ourselves and choose to walk the path of repentance, God will restore us and put our lives back together. There is no sin too great for the grace of God. No matter where you are with God today, the legacy God has for your life is victorious.
It's victorious. You and I are called to overcome. We don't have to be held down by the past. The past doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, you are spirit-filled and powerful to walk victoriously and just let the past be the past. Does that sound too good for you and I to imagine? It is. It's only made possible through the shed blood of Jesus. And Jesus shed his blood to bring us back to him, to give us a new way forward every time we fail so that we can walk in victory. Jesus, our battles are all different. We're human, God. We fail every day. We fail multiple times a day. And this morning, God, we just confess that we need you. That without help, we won't do any better. We don't rely on our own strength. We rely on you, God. We believe in victory through restoration. God, I pray that we would be restored, that anyone here today who's being plagued by past decisions would be set free to walk the path of restoration. God, that we would all look back and we would see how you used us powerfully, maybe even in spite of ourselves. And you get all the glory and we love you because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.